It's not about relationship status. It's bigger than that. See, we tend to put our relationships in categories like romantic or platonic. And so as a natural result, we only tend to think of ourselves as either single or taken. But in reality, there are three modes of being that dictate the health of every single one of our relationships. Solitude, pursuit, and intimacy. And you've gotta be good at all of them. See, if you don't know who you are when you're single, you will lose yourself when you are dating. And even if you have found intimacy with one or two other people, you still have to do the hard work of being okay being alone. Just like a great athlete or a performer who dominates because they have no glaring weaknesses in any aspect of their game, we will only find a complete life when we learn how to thrive in all three states of relationship. You've gotta be a triple threat. So here's a question for you. If you and I are people who God loves, that in fact he sent his son Jesus Christ to conquer death on our behalf, and more than that, Jesus has promised that he is coming back again to usher all of us into a life eternal with him and God the Father in heaven. How does that change the way we live in the here and now. What relationships should we have? What relationships should we avoid? How should we live in light of the fact that the time on this earth is short and there's a time of eternity waiting for us just around the bend? It's an important question. It's a question that one of the earliest Christian leaders, a guy named Paul, uh, wrestled with in a letter that he wrote to a church in the ancient city of Corinth which is why we call the letter that. And he engaged with this exact topic. If the time is short, if we are people who live in anticipation of heaven, how should we live now? What relationships should we have or not have now? And this is what he says. But I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. Now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted and I will share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it is best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. But if you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. And I'm trying to spare you those problems. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. 
Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't know what you were thinking and feeling as I read all that, but my thoughts were mostly along the lines of, huh. (laughs) I mean, in the Christian church that I know, marriage is actually a pretty important piece of what we believe and what we practice and how we live, right? I mean, it's one of our major political platforms, and marriage is important. And now you read one of the first leaders, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, and the best he can say about marriage is, It's not a sin. So what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to apply this, uh, especially in light of a Christian culture that has absolutely just by default said marriage is the the right, the ideal, the better way to live. And if you're single, that's temporary or that's less than or that's that's something that uh, is not to be desired or even something that we look on with suspicion. When you see someone who's farther along in life and they're not married, the first you know, gut check is, oh, well, what's wrong with you, right? And yet here we see that, that the person who set the tone for much of Christianity, he was saying it's better to be single. In fact, for the first 400 years of Christianity, churches didn't even do weddings. Like that wasn't a thing the church even got involved with. So, so what, what's gone on? What, where's the disconnect between a, a, what seems like a fairly clear teaching of Scripture and the way we tend to live now? And there's kind of two um, canyons that we've tended to fall in as Christians as we read this. So one group of Christianity has taken this ex- extremely literally and has said, it is worse to be married, it is better to be single. And so if you want to be holy and pleasing to God, if you want to live a life that is exalted, that's higher up on the ladder of righteousness, then you need to stay single. You can't be a church worker or lead a church unless you are single because that's what they they see this section to say. And, And if you have passions and you burn and you need to get married, fine, but you're lower down the ladder than the people that are actually committing their life completely to God. And the problem with that, as we have seen in more and more real ways in the headlines, is that actually is toxic. When you take something in scripture that is not a command, and you make it something that you legalistically enforce on others, it always ends badly. And if you didn't notice these phrases in this section, I want want to just bring them to your attention. Notice the things Paul said, even as he described this. I do not have a command from the Lord about this. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. So when when any Christian denominations then make this something that they legalistically enforce, they're violating the spirit of what Paul said. 
But now the other half of Christianity, what they've done is they've put a little too much emphasis on these lines and they've said, well, it's not a command. This isn't something he's enforcing. So you know what? We're just going to ignore the whole thing. You know, Paul maybe had some bitterness. Maybe he was resentful. He was single. You know, one too many hits with the snake. You know, there's something going on there. Not a command. He already told us that this isn't from God. We can just ignore it. And we can just prioritize marriage as the right and best way to be. I'd say that's most of American Christianity. But, but what they're missing is that just because he's saying it's not a command doesn't mean he's not saying something really valuable. And the reason we miss the valuable thing is because I think we get locked into these labels that he's talking about being single or being married. It's about a status question instead of about a heart question. I think that's why Paul was so clear to say this. It's not a command. It's not legalistic. I'm doing this for your benefit because he's saying this is about a heart issue that Paul was trying to expose and give us a, a way to navigate. But we make it about the labels. We make it about the relationship status. And so we miss the heart issue. And so here's the heart issue. If you were wondering, this is what Paul is trying to get people to understand and talk about. We are terrified of being alone. This is a fear more innate than just about anything else that, that we can think of, right? It's the, the little kid that moves to a new, a new school and, and comes home, Mommy, none of the other kids will play with me. It's, it's the person that, that had a thriving social life at one point, but now they've moved away and, and they think back to the glory days of high school when they were popular and now no one knows who they are. Or the, the person who's successful in their professional career and yet doesn't have anyone that actually feels like they know them or care about them. It's just what they've accomplished in one facet of their life. Or maybe the person that, that, that's growing older and, and spending time alone in a home and, and just w counting down the end of days by themselves with any loved ones who have passed on before gone. So this is more than just a practical problem. This is a deeply existential terror for us. This idea that we might be alone. And it's a terror that has lots of consequences. Blaise Pascal, who's a mathematician, theologian, one of the, the smartest human beings who have ever existed, uh, he summed it up in what, what's a shockingly, what seems like an oversimplified way, but he says this. He says, all of humanity's problems, all of humanity's problems, stem from one thing and one thing alone, man's inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. And he clarifies it more if you read the, the full section. He's saying, no, no, I'm serious. War, striving, uh, all the ways that we try to distract ourselves, the things we do in life are all driven by this core fear and terror of sitting alone quietly in a room by ourselves. And it's not just the negative things, but he calls that out. He says, yeah, like that's why people go to war is because then they, they can just go do something. Uh, but even positive things become a, a you know, one more thing that we try to distract ourselves from, our inability to have to face ourselves alone in a room. And so why is it? Why is that so existentially terrifying, this thought of being alone by ourselves? Well, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato he had a theory. And his theory, human beings, once upon a time, had been a complete whole. 
They were androgynous, both man and woman, and they were completely fulfilled in and of themselves. But one day, Zeus, in his jealousy, split human beings in half, just for the sake of messing with them. And then this is what happened, according to Plato. And so each one longed for its other half, And so they would throw their arms about each other, weaving themselves together, wanting to grow back together. Love is born into every human being. It calls back the halves of our original nature together. It tries to make one out of two and heal the wound of human nature. Each of us then is a matching half of a human whole. And each of us is always seeking the half that matches him. And when a person meets the half that is his very own, something wonderful happens. The two are struck from their senses by love, by a sense of belonging to one another, and by desire. And they don't want to be separated from one another, not even for a moment. These are people who finish out their lives together and still cannot say what it is they want from one another. Plato in his symposium. Isn't this a beautiful and romantic way of understanding the human condition. When you, when you ask, why is it that, that all of humans' troubles come from our inability to be alone? Oh, it's because you're half of a whole, that you have a missing puzzle piece floating out there in the world somewhere, that if you could find it, it would complete you and bring you back to who you were meant to be. And even if you've never read that passage or heard much about Plato, that belief has driven the last 2,500 years of Western culture. Our movies teach this. This is where they get their philosophy of love. If you've seen Jerry Maguire, this is what he's referring to when he says to Renee Zellweger, you complete me. Right? It's so beautiful. It's so profound. It's what drove my own single and dating life, this idea that, oh, there's someone out there that I, that I can find and I can look for, uh, which is which is why I think marriage has become so disappointing because we have this idea that this is out there waiting, that there's a a person that's the other piece of our jigsaw, that, that one who will complete us and make us whole. And then you get married and you discover, instead of your matching puzzle piece, you discover a broken, flawed human being, much like yourself. I suspect that the divorce rate in our country is driven by the fact that we, even Christians, have subscribed more to Plato than we have to Paul. That we put these absolutely unfair and unreasonable expectations on the other people around us. And then when they fall short, we we don't say, oh, maybe there's more work to do. We say, you must have been the wrong person. I'm going to have to go look somewhere else for my actual soulmate. And the cycle continues. See, I'll I'll say this. I I don't know that anyone has ever actually found their soulmate. I I think Plato is wrong. Funnily enough, Plato decided he was wrong. He, he, He rejected this teaching himself. What I think is far more true is what uh, another great theologian and martyr, uh, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is what he said when he was thinking about what it is when when we hate being alone so much and marriage and friendship and fellowship, for whatever reason, they don't seem to fix it. Here's what he says. Bonhoeffer says, many people seek fellowship because they are afraid to be alone. Because they cannot stand loneliness. They are driven to seek the company of other people. 
There are Christians too who cannot endure being alone, who have had some bad experiences with themselves, who hope that they will gain some help in association with others. And they are generally disappointed. And then they blame the fellowship for what is really their own fault. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let me say that again. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. If you can't be okay by yourself, then relationships are a trap. Relationships are actually going to, to be this distraction from the, the work that actually needed to be done. And not just any relationships, marriage becomes the most dangerous trap of all. See, I think this is why Paul was saying how important it is and, and, how, and how it's maybe better at a heart level to be single. Because there are problems and there are fears that come with being single, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the one thing that you at least avoid as a single person is that marriage, unlike any other earthly relationship we end up having, is such a temptation to offload our identity, our value, our purpose, and to put it onto that spouse who is themselves a broken, sinful human being and who will absolutely mess up the trust that you've given them. See, there are other relationships that we try to do that with as well, but, but marriage is this one where you, you put so much value and worth and you, and you tie up so much of your identity in it that it makes it all the more devastating when it ultimately comes crashing down. I love my wife and we have a very good marriage more than half the time. <laughs> there is truly no one else I could imagine being married to, no one I would ever want to be married to. And yet, that moment has happened in our marriage, and I'm sure it's happened in yours, where you're in the argument, you're in the fight, and the, the unforgivable thing is said. And this idea that I had that, okay, it's all right, I don't have to be alone anymore because I'm married. And they say the thing that makes you feel absolutely unworthy unloved, unknown, misunderstood. And this thing that you thought had staved off the loneliness forever, you realize that even though you're married, you're still just as alone as you ever were before. Because if they can know you intimately and think these awful things about you, then what does that mean about who you are? How can you possibly be okay with yourself? And so when that happens to me, I go right back to the distraction game, right? I mean, this is the thing. Pascal said, the one thing we can't stand is to be alone in a room by ourselves with our own thoughts. And so we live in the 21st century where we never have to do that ever. It's the best. We have technology and smartphones. I can be in the car and turn on the radio. I can go for a run and listen to a podcast or a playlist of songs that are exactly 160 beats per minute. After dinner, I can turn on TV or scroll through the social media feed. During dinner, I can play Candy Crush. Uh, in the bathroom, uh, my wife does this. She can Marco Polo while she's getting ready in the morning, and she can have conversations with like 15 different people while she brushes her teeth. It's great. On the toilet, you can play Mario Kart. There is no place where I have to be alone with myself 
except one. There is, there is one remaining place for me where I cannot hide, where I have to be alone with myself, with my thoughts. And it's the shower. I hate the shower. I tried. I tried. I got one of those Bluetooth speakers that says it's waterproof so that I could bring the distractions in with me, but the steam shorted it out. Which means that I'm there. I'm stuck in this tiny little box by myself. And I don't know about you, but the shower has become the place where when I can no longer distract myself from all of the fears, all of the burdens of the human relationships in my life, that's where they all come to roost. That's where I have to face my own emptiness. In fact, I've started to think of it this way. It's the shower of loneliness, the one place where I'm forced to face my inner emptiness and and I can't get away from it, I can't avoid it. And I don't know about your shower experiences, but, but those are the times I come out of the shower and that's when I'm like, I gotta change jobs. I gotta get a different career because I've spent all this time just thinking about all the ways I feel like I'm letting down uh, my my calling, my coworkers, the ministry that I've been called to do. The shower is where all of those fears come and settle on my shoulder. Or when I'm I'm forced to think about the things that are are not going as well as I want them to be going in my marriage or with my kids, the shower is the place where I can't hide and distract myself from just all the ways I feel like I'm letting down and not living up to who my kids think I am or all the ways I'm not serving my wife the way I should be. And, and the, the things that I can usually keep at bay by just not thinking about them, by just focusing on the distractions that are made widely available to me, the showers where I have to live with it. And it's crushing. There's a reason Pascal said this has driven all of humanity's ills. Because when you are forced to confront yourself without the distraction of human relationships and all the things that are going on around you, you're worried that there's nothing actually there. You're worried that you've put on a good front for others, but you know who you really are. And you know how you've fallen short more than anyone else possibly could. You know the facade that you've put on, the face that you've tried to convince others is true. You're confronted with the vastness of a universe that why should you expect or or demand or even hope for any fulfillment in this life? You're forced to think about a transcendent God, someone who's looking down from above, who, who supposedly knows every intimate nook and cranny of your soul. And you face the existential angst, what's known as the long, dark night of the soul when you realize that there's nothing deep inside, nothing that you can rely on or or find as a source for your own strength and hope. Now, the good thing is I'm not alone in that feeling. I suspect maybe some of you are are maybe resonating with that, but, but a few hundred years ago, someone else who was a very prolific writer and thinker also resonated with that and shared that feeling. His name was Martin Luther. And he knew more than anyone what it was like to face the existential angst of inner emptiness. He was actually in a monastery living in solitude and was forced to, to face his own sins, his own failings, his own emptiness over and over and over again. And in response, he, he went to the scripture, he, he tried to really lean into his relationship with God and see what God said about him and who God said he was. And then Luther wrote what is probably the most important thing anyone has ever written that no one has ever heard about. 
It's called the Heidelberg Disputation. And my guess is none of you have heard that title before. And now that you have, you have no interest in reading it because it sounds boring. The Heidelberg Disputation. And yet in it, he says um, the things that, that actually have driven so much of what this church believes about God. It's the, under, it's the cornerstone, the underpinnings of so much of our flavor and brand of Christianity comes from this document that nobody knows. But let me read to you just one line, one thesis from the Heidelberg Disputation. This is what Luther said. Who had to face his own shower moments, who lived in the despair of emptiness, this is how he came out the other side. He said, there's a difference between divine love and human love. There's a difference between our relationship with God and all of the other human relationships we have in this life. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God doesn't find things that are already pleasing. It creates those things that will be pleasing to it. Conversely, the love of man comes into being only through that which is already pleasing to it. So you see what he's saying? He's saying that every human relationship, you have to be pleasing first, and then relationship is offered, okay? A boss only wants to hire someone that already has the capacity to do the job, and then you get the job. And then uh, you get to keep the job contingent on your ability to be a good, positive worker forwarding the goals, right? That's right. When you date people, you tend not to date someone who is a complete mess, or at least not that you can tell. You want them to have some level of pleasingness. You want them to be somewhat attractive, somewhat have their act together, be somewhat interesting to you, and then you will enter into a relationship with them. With your friends, same thing. Human love needs the object to be pleasing first, and then we give it love because it deserves it. And Martin Luther is saying the only thing that is different is God's love. Because God's love is completely reversed. That God looks at us not pleasing. He sees deep to the emptiness of our soul that we feel in those moments that we're alone. And he says, I love you anyway. And I will make you pleasing. He does it backwards. And Luther didn't make that up out of nowhere. This isn't just a nice idea or wishful thinking. He he got that from the actions and the words of Jesus Christ when he was walking the earth. See, everyone was complaining to Jesus that he hung out with all the losers and all the weirdos and all the broken people. And Jesus said this. He said, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, those who have distracted themselves and are pretending that that their life is fine and they're not empty inside. Instead, I have come to call those who know they are sinners. Those who have faced the shower of loneliness, who have looked deep inside and found emptiness, those are the ones that Jesus is saying, I choose you. I want you you. That is the life-giving love of God. That is what we can find if and only if we're actually willing to, to separate ourselves from all of the distracting voices around us, all of the relationships that are a trap because they want us to put our identity and our self-worth and our value in what another human being thinks of us instead of actually being willing to face the emptiness and to let it be filled by the love of a God 
who has made you pleasing just because he already loved you. Guys, that changes everything. That changes our life. That changes my shower time. Because now I don't have to have a shower of loneliness anymore. I don't have to have a shower where I face my inner emptiness and I just leave drained and depleted and scared. Now I can have a shower of solitude. A place where I can turn my thoughts and hearts, not just inward and see what what is empty and, and doubtful there, but then also upward and see how God fills me in with his value and the worth that he gives me because he loves me no matter what I do in this life. No matter how I earn it, how I live up to it, how I meet the burdens and the demands of life, irrelevant to God. I have worth because he paid the ultimate cost for me. And now, instead of the shower being a place where I have to confront my inner demons and I have to let existential angst just burden and overwhelm me, it can be a place where I let the healing love and grace of God wash over me through the warm water. That shower can be a reliving of the baptism where God came down in water and word and said, I fill you, I fill your emptiness with my spirit. I give you everything you need for this life. I love you no matter what you do or have done, and I will continue to make you pleasing. And we can leave the shower not burdened down by despair and fear, but filled up with the worth and the joy and the purpose of God. See, here's what God thinks of you. Another writer, early Christian, wrote it this way. This, when you are forced to tune out all the voices, to really wrestle with what God thinks of you, this is what God thinks of you from 1 John 3. See how very much our Father loves us. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. No matter what relationship you have or don't have, No matter what lack you feel, that you don't have this, you don't have a friend, you don't have a spouse, you don't have all these things, no matter what human relationships you don't have, or the ones that you have and you feel like you're blowing, no matter how bad of a spouse, how bad of a friend, how bad of a parent you are, you are the child of God. But all these people around us, these relationships that are the trap, they don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him either. Because they're all distracted too. But dear friends, no matter what your relationships might tell you, we are already God's children. And he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him. And these words of truth and grace wash over us. This is who God says you are. This is what makes you whole, not finding some mystical other half that's floating around the world somewhere, but actually being able to be alone with the creator, the potter who made you, who knows the unique design he had for you, who loves you just for who you are, and yet also has purposes and intent for you that are gonna bless and please you and others. But we cannot get there We cannot hear that voice of God as long as we live a life that is obsessed and distracted with the human relationships around us. This is why Paul's saying at a heart level, it's better to be single. 
Because being single, at least, you, you have fewer of those distractions. You can have that focus on God, his naming, his identity of you, doing the work that he's called you to do because there's nothing else distracting you from that purpose. But even if you're married, you need it too. This is not about whether you're single or married. It is about that either way, no matter what statuses or, or calls of life have on you, that your first call, the first relationship that matters is to be alone in solitude with the God who knows you because he's the one who made you. And it is difficult. I worry about my children because they have never known a life without distraction. My kids have been bored for a total of five minutes of their entire lives because Netflix is right there. And when they're pestering us or whatever, like we can just hand them the phone and just say, play some Alto's adventure and then we're done and it's great. And they'll never get to experience solitude. They'll never get to experience what it's like to just be alone, to be bored and to let the boredom and the silence drive you back to your God. That's what we all need. It's what I need. And I give thanks to the grace of God that that speaker, that Bluetooth speaker broke on the third time I used it because the only way I was ever going to find it was by being forced to be alone in the shower. And so I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know where you can find in the cracks of your day this place where you can, you can choose to set aside all of the distractions and the demands and the voices of the relationships around you. But you got to. You gotta figure it out. Or else all of your human relationships are just gonna be a place for you to displace your own fears, your own wounds, your own brokenness. So here are some tips. You gotta find your own space. Maybe it's the shower, maybe it's somewhere else, but here's what you can do. Here's what I've found has actually uh, helped me is that I have to, first of all, just remember this truth. This is what St. Augustine said about 1600 years ago. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We try to rest it in other people. We try to rest it in spouses. We try to rest it in work and purpose there. It will always be restless until it rests in you. So we go to silence or we go to solitude. And these are the things that, that we have to do to tune in and to understand what God's trying to give us through solitude. First of all, you got to get rid of the other voices. It's painful and it's hard we need to hear that. When you listen to the radio, it makes you feel like you're connected to the world and you have to turn that off. And then it's not enough to just turn it off and just to be empty. You don't have to replace it. You have to fill it with something else. You have to tune in to God's voice for you. And you can find that through scripture. And if you need a place to start, start with that passage I just read from 1 John 3. That what is God's voice for you? What identity is he giving you? You are his child and he is making you something worthwhile. He's doing it, not you. You don't have to earn it. It's not another relationship you're gonna let down. He has found you pleasing because he made you pleasing. And then from there, maybe try dialoguing. Actually engage in a conversation with God. Even express the doubts. I don't feel like a child of God right now, God. I don't feel like I'm pleasing or delightful. I don't feel like you're making me into something better. And to just say that. And maybe a written journal is a good way to do it, but, or maybe it's just a prayer life that just says that you're, you're going to talk back and forth with him. And if all of these things feel too hard, here, here's another just surprising thing I found, is that physical activity has actually become the thing 
that helps me get to these places better. See, as my mind is frantic and anxious, as it's filled with the overwhelming demands of relationships on me, I can actually tap into my body to calm and soothe those thoughts, to tune out the voices inside my head so that I can hear God's voice clearly, to go for a run or to do some physical exercise, to chop a bunch of wood, to do something repetitive and physical because it's that repetitive physical action that soothes us enough to then get back to silence and letting God speak into us. And so if any of these feel like they're feasible or doable for you, I I, I commit to you to try them, not for our own sake, not just for our own sake, I should say. See, this is the other problem with the way we misinterpret 1 Corinthians 7, that we think Paul is drawing a, a distinction. He's making a separation between you either need to be in a relationship with other people or you need to be single, and it's one or the other. But that is not what Paul is saying. In fact, another person who had to live this life of solitude like Paul did, a man named Thomas Merton, he had this to say about solitude. It is only in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they actually are, not for what they say or seem to be. See, the point of solitude is not that you don't have other relationships. It's not to go be a a monk up on a hill living in isolation from others. Solitude, true solitude, is a gift. That's what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a gift. A gift that lets us find our identity, our value, our worth from God and God alone. So that we can then go out and have relationships that are actually holy and healthy because we're not looking to those relationships to give us validation or worth or value. We find that worth and value in solitude with God. And so relationships can be an opportunity for us to love and bless others. And that's what we're gonna talk about the next two weeks of this series. So come back to hear more what it looks like at that point. But for here and now, that no relationships will be good for us. No community or fellowship will be, will be healing or healthy until we have learned how to be healthy and okay alone. Till we have learned how to communicate and commune with our God in solitude. Wherever we have to go to find that. Amen.